Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover Our Hope by Father Dmitri Dudko. This is book 44 of what ended up being a total of 45 books for my 2020 reading list. Well, this one's not exactly a bestseller. It has a whopping five reviews on Goodreads, and I am one of those reviews. And of all the books out there, it ranks number 2,600,000 as the most popular book on Amazon. So why did I read it? Well, first off, it was a gift. And second off, the premise is quite intriguing, especially after having read the Gulag Archipelago. So Father Dmitry Dudko, the author, was a priest in Soviet Russia. He was a priest of the Russian Orthodox Church. And that was not necessarily a good time to be a priest. First off, they probably were going to close your church down because the basis of communism is atheism. So Christianity is not a, a welcome part of that. And so if they haven't closed your church, they you, you can remain open, but you're very limited in what you can do. And you can basically run the ceremony. You can basically run the service. And that's about it. You can't speak outside of that. You can't preach from the Bible during that ceremony or during that service. You're, you're, you're limited to just putting forward the, the ceremony part of it. So what Dude, Father Dudko decided to do, he, he noticed that he was starting to get questions from his from her, his, his people, his parishioners. And he decided to just start answering those questions and to call it a dialogue sermon, but to take questions. And this way he was not, he, he was skirting the law. He was not, he was not disobeying the law of not preaching, but he was simply answering his parishioners questions. This brought a lot of attention though. They, these, these dialogues, started gaining a lot of attention, a lot of popularity, and people were just hungry to hear what he had to say. So it became very popular. But that brought some negative attention, which led to his arrest in 1980. And the, the authorities, whatever they did to him, they broke the man. And on June 20th, 1980, he was shown on Soviet television renouncing his activities. And people knew that, I mean, if you, especially the way somebody would look uh, on, on television, they, they knew that this was probably not of your own accord of, of what you were saying. You were, things were done to you that, uh, that led to you renouncing. And that's what happened to him. He, he renounced his activities. And this book takes place before that. And so you, you kind of see the writing on the wall. There are 11 discussions total. There's, there's nine that take place in the church. And then I think the final two are, are, are either not in the church or, or one of them is even uh, a discussion of, a, of an interrogation that, that he had. And so you see the writing on the wall, like he, he's not popular with the authorities. This is not going to end well for him. And to, to then hear that, that they broke the man, it's, it's just, it's, it's devastating. But to read these questions and answers is, is incredible. And I know there's a lot going on in, in what I just said, just kind of the brief overview of his his life. But let me go back to the first thing I said about why I read this book, in that it was a gift. The person who gave me this book 
will actually be joining me in this on this episode in the next segment. His parents knew Father Dudko. And my friend Yvonne, who will be joining me, he he met Father Dudko as well when he was a, a small child. And so he gave me this book. He he knew Father Dudko. And so we're gonna get to hear from him and and, and hear more about this man. And hear a little more about the, the end of his life. Cause this book takes place in 1973 and 1974. These dialogues do. So we don't know much after that of, of what happened in, in, in this book does not go into the, him uh, renouncing his activities in 1980. So we'll learn a little bit more about that in the, in the next, uh, in the next segment here. But before we do that, just a, a, a brief overview of this man's life. Father Dudko, born February 24th, 1922. He served in the red army in World War II, as did Solzhenitsyn. And then after the war, he entered Moscow Theological Institute, but was turned in by a fellow student in 1948 because Father Dudko had written a poem where he criticized the authorities for destroying the holy places in Russia. For that, he was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor in a Siberian gulag. He ended up serving eight and a half of those years until 1956, after Stalin's death. He was most famous for delivering these, these nine sermons, and they were delivered at St. Nicholas's Church in Moscow. Late 1973 to early 1974 time frame, and that, that is the topic of these books. These, these question and answer se- sessions are broken up into chapters, and so he, he first gave these audibly, and then it was later transcribed in, into this, this book. If there's one thing that has stuck out in this reading project, it's that you learn a lot from people who have suffered. Some of the best books I've read for this project are written by people who have gone through just tremendous, unimaginable suffering. And there's just something about the lessons learned, the insight gained, the wisdom obtained that makes these books stick out. It's just something that you're not going to get in an average life. And you can you can tell that this man has suffered. You can tell by the answers he gives to his questions. Sometimes the answers will just be one paragraph, and you're just kind of reading that paragraph thinking, how did he fit all that in? And other times it will be, it will be multiple pages of his answer. But there is so much wisdom, so much packed in, that it is a powerful book in, in that sense. So as I mentioned, in 1980, he was arrested. Uh, he was broken, and uh, by many accounts, he was kind of deemed an irrelevant man after that. But he deeply regretted renouncing his activities. He made some comments uh, along the lines of uh, he, he wished he had just rather died than to have had to live with that turmoil in his head of, of having renounced. And he, he lived for... For 24 more years after that, he died June 28th, 2004. So before I get into uh, my thoughts about the book, some of the things that stuck out to me, let's get Yvonne on and let's hear from him and in, in, in hear stories about the, the man himself, Father Dudko.
I've got Yvonne with me here. Yvonne, can you tell us your full name? Tell tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, and then and then I'll start asking you some questions about uh, about your life, your your family's life, and, and its connection with Father Dudko. Awesome. That's really nice to be here on this podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Ivan Nekrasov, or many people here in the U.S. know me as Ivan. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was uh, born in Russia and uh, during the Cold War in 1975. Uh, when I was 16, we moved to Israel. And then uh, after eight years in Israel, I moved to the U.S. Nice. Nice. So what was it like growing up in Soviet Russia? Yes, it's 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 hard to encapsulate it in a few words. Um, so as I mentioned, I was born in 75. It was, you know, the Cold War was still going on. There was still a lot of uh, restrictions, you know, on freedom of speech, freedom of religion or worship. Um, uh, I was born into a mixed family. So my mom was predominantly Jewish family and my dad is mostly Russian, Polish with a little bit of German uh, in there. So, you know, you can say, polar opposites, you know, as a Russian background can go, but it gave us uh, as kids exposure to both sides, right? To Jewish faith and Jewish background and to uh, Christianity as well. Um, my parents weren't religious, but they were definitely, um, you know, identified as dissidents, right? So they, especially with my dad's background, his relatives were, um, you know, during the revolution were part of Tsar's army uh, my great grandfather uh, served in uh, uh, in Tsar's army during World War One, right? Survived that and then uh, died during uh, civil war. So um, uh, some of my dad's relatives actually, uh, you know, lost everything, uh, you know, because of communism, and some even died in the gulag. Actually, wow. And uh, and were both if. If you were Christian or Jewish, was it kind of equal uh, persecution or equal lack of rights, or or did one have more rights than the other? So people who followed God, right, in in any way, were equally persecuted. So uh, interesting part, right? My my mom's relatives, her Jewish side of the family, actually fled Ukraine from. The persecution by the people who supported the czar, right? So, so they fled because uh, of pogroms. So if you watched Fiddler on the Roof, you know some Jews fled to the west and some uh, ran away to Russia to, you know, to, to flee that persecution. So they, some of them, kind of remained faithful to their religion. Some actually became communists, right, as uh, a way to protect themselves from actually from nationalism. So it's, um, but in terms of uh, religious restrictions, they were imposed on everyone, right? So both synagogues and churches were, uh, most of them were closed. So there was very few, I think in Moscow, there was only two synagogues and out of uh, hundreds of churches, only um, probably several dozen left open, right? So um, I believe before revolution, there was more than 300 churches in Moscow. Um, and, you know, you could, think count the ones that were open during my childhood. So how how did your how did your parents get to know the author of this book, Father Dudko? Uh, so my um, I actually contacted my mom before uh, uh, dialing in 
Right, and what she said is that he was fairly famous in you know the dissident circles, so people heard about him. And uh, my parents um, used to go to like a park nearby where you know that small church where he was assigned to near Moscow, uh, where he was a priest. So they decided to stop by and listen to him. So they came in and then started coming back. Uh, so I don't remember how many times they went back, but you know, as one of my earliest childhood memories is being in the yard of the church and then going to his house for uh, for dinner. And wow. Sitting in my dad's lap and, you know, I could really hardly understand what they were talking about. So what, for on your parents' side of things, was it more uh, for him being a, a dissident or more of him being a priest? Like what, what, was, what was your parents' draw to, to him? It was both, right? There was, there was a deep hunger for truth, you know, in a lot of people's hearts, right? So my dad was an engineer, so he was very highly educated. You know, he had a PhD in uh, uh, mathematics and physics. So he, uh, uh, and he was a seeker, right? He definitely wanted to find truth. And, um, hmm. uh, and he, his friends were deeply analytical and, you know, philosophical uh, people. Uh, who would come and you know hang out, discuss Christianity, discuss Hegel, you know, and and everything in between. Uh, so um, yeah, so when they heard about him, they saw it was you know possible to go visit. They went and listened. Wow! And so, from what I understand, this book took place between 1973 and 1974 when he gave these these 11 or 12 discussions. Uh, so he he was. At, by the time that your parents were were hearing him, was it was it during that time? Because I, I know you were born a little later, and and then you would have heard him. So after this book was written and he did those discussions, uh, he kept he kept doing them. Then, yeah. So to my understanding, is that at that point he was already doing discussions at home, so he was already banned from uh, doing them in the church. Right. So this happened. He got published. Once you get published overseas like he did, it was, you know, he was, I guess, walking a very high risk path, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So um, to my understanding, this was uh, the very end of his kind of public, uh, you know, anti, I mean, he tried not to say anti-communist, right, but his public kind of ministry that opposed atheism. Uh, there was the end of it. And then in 1980, just a year or two later, right, he uh, had to recant on TV. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because just in, in the book, you, um, because it was six or so years before that happened in 1980, you, you start getting, you start getting glimpses that something bad is probably coming because he starts getting interrogated. They start taking him in. Uh, but since the book er ends earlier than that, we're not given any information of what, what happens later. Uh, I mean, I've seen some online, but, but what, what happened in 79 or, or 80? And uh, did you, did you see that on television when you were, when you were there? Like, I guess, describe that whole, that whole situation. So, um, Personally, I did not see it, right? But I remember my parents talking about it. And, uh, you know, some years later, I remember asking, like, why aren't we going to that place anymore? Um, hmm. And, you know, and they said, well, you know, the government basically closed it down. Uh, and 
And to my parents, like what they believed is they believed that he was uh, tortured, right? Or threatened severely, right? So he didn't look good uh, on TV. Like it didn't look like a voluntary, you know, confession. Uh, in mm -hmm. their mind, he was definitely forced to do it and um, most likely under threat of, you know, harm to his family. Yeah. I, wow. you know, what, what we knew, you know, that quite often, again, this is just a possibility, right? But we had friends or my parents had friends who were um, given psychotropic drugs, right? They would arrest them uh, for, let's say, for, uh, you know, proclaiming their faith publicly or for uh, sharing books that were illegal. And, you know, it was enough to say that you believed in God for you to be considered schizophrenic, right? So if you stayed quiet and didn't tell anyone, you could believe whatever you wanted, right? But if you were mm -hmm. more public about your faith or about disagreement with atheism or uh, communism, you basically could be arrested for anything, right? They could say, well, you talk to God, you know, it means you're talking to someone who doesn't exist, it means you have an imaginary friend, you're schizophrenic, put you in jail, psychiatric jail for, you know, years and, you know, give you severely heavy medications mm -hmm. and then after that he they they said he was just never the same he, just, yeah. he was just kind of a broken man and, and there are a few quotes from him where he it's just heart-wrenching but he he uh he's so saddened by recanting uh he said that 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 death would have been better than than that like the 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 turmoil in his head from, from having done that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's hard to read it and it's hard to, to read this book knowing that that's going to happen in his future because he had, he had been in the gulag. He'd been in, in there for eight and a half years. And then even in, in these discussions that he's having, he's talking about, he's ready you know, he's ready if, if they're, he's even being interrogated in there and he says, I'm, I'm ready for you to shoot me. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, but, but they, but they were, they were able to break him, and, it, and it's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's sad, but you just can't imagine, I mean, just can't imagine even what that would be like, you know, to, to have to go through that. Yeah, I think it is, you know, and we don't know, like if we were, Put in this situation, none of us know how we'll actually react. We can dream as, that as, you know, followers of, uh, you know, God, we will be strong, and you know, but we actually can't guarantee that. One of my favorite mm -hmm. other authors is Richard Wombrandt, you know, a Romanian Jewish pastor who spent 14 years in uh, solitary confinement and in, in jail in communist Romania, you know, and, and he said his encouragement was even though he stayed strong, he said never judge people who are going through that, right? Because yeah. we just don't know. He's like, we never know how we will respond, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether people are in the underground church or in the, you know, church that was submitted to the government officially. Yeah. And Vic Victor Frankl has a, a quote that's really haunting where he says, the best of us didn't make it. You know, the, yeah. the, the best of us didn't didn't live through this. Yeah. And uh, it's just such a haunting haunting thing to, to think about. So in, in, in your, in your interactions, I know you were very young, uh, but maybe for, I guess from some stories from your, your parents as well, what, what was, what was he like? What was father Dudka like? Um, 
so from the stories and uh, from me being a kid, he was a kind man, right? Me as like mm-hmm. a four-year-old in the you know yard of his church or at the table, he seemed like a you know very nice kind of kind grand grandparent type person, right? He mm-hmm. seemed old. I think he was fairly actually young. He's probably fifties uh, back then, uh, but to me, he seemed very old because he was older than my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, he was considered to be a, a, a kind, kind of a teddy bear person. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. And then um, your your parents were were also hearing other. They were meeting other dissidents. They were hearing other other stories on kind of a broader scale. Um, the Gulag Archipelago had a had a huge impact on me reading that uh, and just just learning about that. Um, your parents were were learning about these stories all the time, and and people who didn't survive the gulags, or or maybe they did survive, and and your parents were hearing their stories. What are, what are some of the things that stick out to you about about that time, about what they were what they were hearing, the stories they were gathering? Uh, what are what are a couple of things that that really left a, a deep imprint on you? I would say the, the deepest imprint was you know just seeing my dad at night, right? Listening to the Voice of America or Free Europe, you know, every single night he had this huge, you know, old radio unit sitting in the kitchen and, you know, he will dial in and, and, um, you know, the government was broadcasting noise on the same radio waves that, you know, Free Europe was broadcasting actual news. So you had to sit with your hand on the dial and adjust it all the time to be able to avoid, (laughs) you know, the humming of the military machines that were trying to block the sound. So just, you know, every night after night, you know, you know, my grandmother was listening to the Soviet news in her room. And then, you know, I don't know if we were doing it on purpose or, you know, so neighbors couldn't hear what my dad was doing, (laughs) but, but, (laughs) you know, and then my dad was sitting in the kitchen listening to, uh, you know, VOA, Um, you know, and, and knowing how, you know, the, knowing to some extent that it was dangerous, you know, some of the things that my parents did, they never told us until we left, you know? Mm-hmm. So like I, every time I talk to my parents who live in Israel now, you know, they tell me something new, you know? Wow. But, uh, you know, one of the, I would say, just brightest memories uh, of that radio um, experience is in 1984, you know, I, I was nine years old at the time. I came into the kitchen at night Ask my dad, what are they reading? And he said, well, they're reading 1984. And I'm saying, what is it about? He said, well, it was a prophetic book that describes how we're living now. <laughs> you know, and uh, it was very difficult to find books, right? So the books were um, smuggled from, you know, from the West, like books like 1984 or Gulag Archipelago, even though it was written by a Russian, you couldn't get that. Um, mm. You could, you know, lose your freedom for having anything like that or animal farm right if you're talking about george orwell's books mm-hmm. um uh the same like we didn't know that dudko wrote a book right I, I literally found it in the u.s like I, I had no idea that uh he wrote those books back then so oh. uh, yeah and then people would pass it around right so people were hungry to know the truth right the same was with the bibles and uh, dudko mentions that in his book, right, that the people would pass the Bibles around. And he said, if you get a hold of one, you know, write notes and, you know, kind of like copy the scriptures that speak to you the most, you know. Yeah. 
So, uh, and it, it happened, you know, to buy a Bible, you had to, you know, pay literally your monthly salary to, to actually buy one on the black market. Wow. Wow. So the book is called Our Hope. Mm-hmm. He spent eight and a half years in a gulag. He was under almost constant threat of being rearrested. Uh, he had a wife, he had kids. That's not a very hopeful scenario, not a very hopeful situation. But you, as you mentioned, he was a very kind man. Uh, what comes through in, in the pages of this book is, is uh, a very wise man. Um, I, I say a lot in this project, some of the best books I've read are by those who have suffered. And there's a there's an insight you get. There's there's something that happens that an average person is never going to reach those depths. And someone who has suffered has reached a different level. They've they've had to they've had to go deeper. They've had to do things that that a lot of us can't even imagine. And, and that comes through in this in this book. And the questions he gets, sometimes he'll he'll take a few pages to to answer. Uh, other times it's a paragraph and it's, it is so strong and, and impactful, but with such, such a life, such a dire circumstance in Russia for his life, why, why did he title it Our Hope? Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I love the title, right? Because for me, it speaks volumes to me about, you know, how my parents were able to live under that as well, but we for the most part, we didn't live in fear, right? Because, you know, my parents provided us a very, I would say, peaceful environment, but, um, and hopeful as well. But as somebody who is reading the Bible now, you know, in the light of my childhood, in the light of what my parents, my ancestors lived through, and in the light of the books like it, I think Christianity and faith has a very different meaning from what it usually, how it's usually presented, you know, in in the West, Western mm-hmm. countries that are a lot more prosperous, mm-hmm. right? So I think um, he was able to see, right, that Jesus's ministry, right, was it happened, you know, in Israel under Roman occupation, right? It was a very hostile environment, mm-hmm. right? And it was all about having that hope in, you know, impossible situations, right? Knowing mm-hmm. that, you know, God is our hope. Um, and Dutko quite often mentions, you know, he says Russia is Golgotha, right? So he said it's a place where the crucifixion is happening. But he said where crucifixion is happening, that's where the resurrection is happening as well. Mm-hmm. And and that hope, the, the joy of knowing the hope is tied to the, the suffering itself. Wow. And for me, you know, even you know, living now, let's say having teenagers now during the pandemic, right, that gives me ability to, I guess, translate that into this suffering that they're going through and saying, hey, you know, the book is for us, hmm. right? If, if, if you embrace God in your suffering here, you know, the suffering turns into joy, hmm. right? And that's the concept that I think I've only seen in the persecuted church. Yeah. Wow. Well, one, uh, one final question for you here. And um, throughout, throughout the book, he identifies the biggest problem 
as atheism. And that stuck out to me because he had spent time in the gulag because of, you would think because of communism, but he didn't identify the problem as communism. He identified it as atheism. And, and part of that may have been just to, to try to avoid trouble uh, by, by calling, calling out a, 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 a different thing than, than just the, than calling out the government uh, by, by calling out more of the spiritual side of it. But um, he calls the biggest problem in Russia at that time, atheism. What, uh, what do you think the biggest problem in the States is right now? I would say it's the same problem. <laughs> you know, I, would, hmm. I, I think it, atheism is destroying the moral fabric of the society, right? That's what Russia went through, right? Mm -hmm. So um, atheism being the core of the communist ideology, denied morals, denied existence of God, destroyed the family intentionally, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, societies uh, started falling apart so fast that they tried to bring some of those concepts back you know, like a concept of family was, you know, reinstituted, you know, they had the communist family, communist morals, but it was sort of too late, right? Russia is still trying to rebuild what the communism destroyed or what wow. you can say what the atheism destroyed, right? So the abortion rates, the divorce rates, um, the, you know, mortality rates, alcoholism rates, everything is, you know, 50%, I think, um, Dutko mentions divorce rates were 50% back then. Mm -hmm. uh, abortion rates at some point were 50%, you wow. know, in Russia. Uh, alcoholism rates, some statisticians say by Western standards, 60% of uh, adult males are alcoholics, right? So um, it, it destroys the society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, it was, and he kept saying that he was doing. A, the government should be applauding him because he's getting people out of alcoholism and, and he called it hooliganism and fighting and in and, and these things that were destroying the fabric of of Russia. He was, he called himself a patriot, and and I, I just thought that was really interesting because the everyone in power was saying he was not a patriot, and and here he is. I'm actually, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help build the people of Russia. I'm trying to, to help them. And, and, uh, it didn't, didn't end up end well for, for him in that sense, but, uh, but maybe in another way it did. So, well, that was really interesting. Um, it, it's amazing to, to read a book and then to be able to, to talk to somebody who has met the author, uh, especially someone like this, who, just a, a, an incredible life. And so thank you. Thank you for, for joining and, and sharing, sharing what you know about Father Dudko and, and, and uh, what your family went through. Uh, I just, I can't imagine. And to, to hear stories and, and just, you know, to, to know that you were born in that situation, your parents were, and then your, you know, your grand, your, your grandparents, and they lost family members in the gulag. Like we are not we're not far removed from this. It, it's, it's, it's not some ancient history that this stuff happened. And so thank you for, uh, thank you for joining. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure.
gotten to talk to Yvonne at some other times just about the work that his parents did. And, and one of the things that they did is they collected stories. If you were sent to the gulag, you, you were disappeared. And if other people mentioned that you were gone, they were considered sympathizers and they might also be sent to the gulag. And so when someone was sent to the gulag, that was, that was the end. You, you didn't speak about them anymore. And most or quite often they just disappeared from history. They died in the gulags and, and that was, that was it. And so part of what Yvonne's parents were doing were collecting stories of people who had, had been killed in the gulags and, History had forgotten, but they were they collected these stories, and you you obviously couldn't have these stories uh, during that time, and so they would write them down and they would hide them, and they were collectors of stories, and I just think that's an incredible incredible thing, and an incredible tribute to to lives lost in such a a horrible and, and tragic way. So in in segment three here, I, I want to cover three things that really stuck out to me in in this book, Our Hope. And the first is this. It's about heroism. So I'm going to read a a paragraph here. Let's look at life. It doesn't take much to become an atheist today. Master a few prepared phrases, swim with the current, and you're an atheist. On the other hand, to be a believer, you have to know a lot. You have to bear a lot of difficulties. You have to swim against the current. It takes a heroic spirit. It's not an accident that believers today are heroic people. End quote. I, I... I marked that paragraph down because I, it made me think of, uh, well, when you're on these social media networks, you're connected to people that you, you haven't, maybe you haven't seen them in a while. Maybe they're friends from, from high school or, or college and, and you're just, you're still connected. And one day somebody will post something and they, you know, they've, they've come to the light and they've, they've realized all these things and, and you look at what they've written and, there, there's no heroism in it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's everything going along with the current. All they're stating is what is popular, and they somehow came to that conclusion. And, and everyone pats them on the back. And <laughs> I thought this paragraph really spoke to that. Let's look at life. It doesn't take much to become an atheist today. Master a few prepared phrases, swim with the current, and you're an atheist. And that seems to be a lot of of. Um, of what happens. And, and we see that happen. And uh, I just liked that he, he described, but to, to swim against the, the current that takes a heroic spirit. The next one, I, I wanted to contrast the book Homo Deus by Yuval Harari, Noah Harari. And that one we read for the project in 2018. And, and Jason and I covered that on a podcast episode. And part of the part of what that book is talking about is if these are the beliefs that we have as a society, for instance, the soul is dead, what are the ramifications for that? And what are the ramifications as we start using artificial intelligence? We start using AI more and more. And Harari's idea is that uh, we, we will be, be starting to become these God men, these homo, homo deus will be, become God men. And, it, and it's frightening. And, and the pic, picture that's painted in that book is not, not necessarily a pleasant one. And so there, there were a few points, in it, and I just wrote Homo Deus in the, in the side of the, of the page that I was, 
that I was reading. And so I want to read these paragraphs because I think they, they contrast well with what uh, Harari was talking about in, in Homo Deus. So here's one of the answers that Father Dudko gives to, to one of the questions that he receives. Here it goes. To sum up, evil entered into the world by sin. Sin is an act of man's free will. Man was seduced. He then had to understand freely through his own experience, just as freely as he was seduced, that sin carries no happiness in itself and that he must be delivered from sin. The creation of the new man consists in this. In the creation of the new man, both God and man take part. God and man should become like one whole, the God-man. End quote. So it's a little different than the, than the description in, in Homo Deus. And the other one comes a little later. In, in the book, uh, in answer to another question, where he says this, man denies God because he himself wants to become a God. There's no other explanation for atheism, but it's time we understand that deifying ourselves leads to a dead end, one from which we cannot escape except by turning to God. Otherwise, there's ruin, end quote. Just found those uh, interesting way to contrast what, what we read in Homo Deus. The last thing is... Atheism and the Soul. Here's a paragraph uh, in the ninth discussion. I took, I look at the notes I get, which say that anyone who attends my discussions will be transferred and all be thrown in jail or in a mental hospital. I view this as a simple, as simple alarm and alarmism. We're just too scared. We're getting to the point that we're afraid of everything, but it is precisely atheism that we ought to fear. It's more horrible than war or the plague, because with those, only your body is destroyed, but atheism destroys everything, including your soul, end quote. The reason I highlight that one is, is that will tie in to my one thing, my one key takeaway from this book, which I will cover in the next segment. Now in a segment four in the one thing, it's a tough one. Um, I I knew going into this book that he later recanted and was forced to do so in on live television, and, and that 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 destroyed him. That it just broke the man. And he, I don't. As far as I know, he never spoke about what happened. Uh, I don't think it's known what happened. We can guess based on what happened to others. But something happened, and and he he re, he recanted, but he he regretted that, and he hated that he had done that, and he had wished that he had died instead. the The turmoil and the pain of having done that was so was so bad, and so while reading this book, I I knew that 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 happened at the end. But during the book, while reading the book, he's he's talking about how he's he he knows something may happen like that, uh, how he may get arrested. He may get shot. He may get, he, he may get tortured, but he's ready. And you're reading it knowing, but was he ready? And I don't know. And, and, and we, we don't, we don't really know. He, he lived 24 years after that happened, but, uh, we, we don't know all that, that went into it. We do know, this book, we, we have this book as a, as a living testament of, of his life. And it's, uh, uh, over a two year period, but this stands. And so is this, 
do we look at this as his life or do we look at that he recanted in in 1980 do we look at his years of suffering in the in the gulag how does it all fit together it reminded me a lot of a book from from the 2018 reading list splendor of god by by Morrow and and Morrow was a missionary from the United States into what was then Burma and this was the early 1800s and this man if there was ever a man who sought the face of God it was it was this man Morrow this this missionary to to Burma and he suffered dearly for that he he lost his wife he lost other family members he was just sick all the time um and at the end of the book, it, there's this, this scene where he's, he's met another woman later on in life after his, his first wife has died. And she tells him that he can see God in, they're, they're like on this mountain and just overlooking this, this beautiful scene. And, and she says, you can see God in that. And, and yeah, it's a nice sentiment, but it's, it, after this man is is seeking after the actual face of God through everything you've read up until that point for somebody to say, Oh, just look at the trees and and you'll see God in there. It's almost a letdown. It's almost a disappointment, but you look at the fruit of that man's life and what resulted in Burma and what is now Myanmar, uh, in, in, in terms of, of people who came to faith because of this one man throughout the years. You, you still see his impact today, 200 years later. And so it, it, was, it was similar in, in that sense for, for this book, Our Hope, by Father Dimitri. You see the impact of his life. You see this book. You can, you can buy this book. You can read this book. You can, you can hear his answers. You can hear his answers forged through suffering from honest questions by his parishioners. And these words speak today. So when you look at his whole life and you, and you, you see this, this recanting and then living 24 years after that, just in, in, in turmoil of the mind and in disgust with himself for having, having done that, how, how does it all fit? How does it all tie? How does it all tie together into a life well lived? I don't have an answer for that, but that that's where my mind goes and that's where it went in reading that book this book and how it tied in just with that that last thing i read in segment 3 of we're getting to the point that we're afraid of everything but it is precisely atheism that we ought to fear it's more horrible than war or the plague because with those only your body is destroyed but atheism destroys everything including your soul So what is the life well lived? What it what what is what is it that that we should go after? Is it just for things here? Or is there something to this soul thing that that in Homo Deus in, in Harari's book he just he he says it, it it doesn't exist. So let's let's proceed. Let's see where this road leads if there is no soul. But then you read books like the Gulag Archipelago, and he said, My soul was nourished in the gulag how is your soul nourished in a a place of such suffering and torture you read a book like our hope by father dudko and he says russia is experiencing uh, 
true faith right now because of this suffering. And you see the, the suffering of, of Maro, the, the man who went to, to Burma as a missionary. And, and you see what came of that, uh, of, of his suffering. So I, there, there's something to that. There's something to the, the suffering and the good life, which, which runs contrary to a lot of what we hear of the good life being pain-free and, and full of joy and, and full of, of riches. And, and, and that's, that's what you're striving for, right? That's, that's the good life. But maybe it's not. And if things get bad, uh, where, is, where is our hope? That's going to do it for today. Uh, thank you, Yvonne, for joining. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I look forward to, to further discussions and learning more about your life and, uh, and the things your parents learned from, from those who, who suffered in Russia. You can find out more about Books of Titans by going to booksoftitans.com. I've recently revamped the website. I have a lot of resources on there now. I have a spreadsheet you can use to track your own reading. I have a coffee mug that you can now buy. And I also have an option where I can become your reading mentor. I can put together a list of books for you to read. I'll, I'll, I'll buy them for you and send them your way. That's an option now on the website. And I will handpick your your particular set of books based on what you want to learn, your interests, uh, books you've read in the past, and I'll put I'll I'll put together a reading list for you. If you're interested in that, you can check it out on BooksOfTitans.com. Go to the resources page, and you'll see that that option there. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be talking about the Chronicles of Narnia cover all seven books in in that one episode so i hope you'll you'll be back and, and listen to that episode until then keep learning keep reading i'm out